It's great to see you. If you've never met, my name is Jay. I'm part of the team here, and um, we're going to talk about the noise of our world and the possibility of hearing God. So uh, to jump in, um, I just want to invite you to pray with me. Let's take a few deep breaths and ask God who is here with us now um, to speak to us. God, we thank you for your love and for your presence. We thank you for your voice that um, though it doesn't seem like it most of the time, you are still speaking. And we ask today that you would give us ears to hear and the courage and the trust to obey and to follow. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Um, eight years ago, a little over eight years ago now, when my daughter, Harper, was born, uh, they don't, you know, Jenny and I took all the classes and stuff, but they don't forewarn you. They, there's all these little things they don't tell you about. I'll give you one example that has nothing to do with our teaching. My daughter was born. We knew we were having a girl. She came out, and nobody told me that newborns have, like, the crazy, um, the hair all over their body. Does anyone know about this? So my daughter was born, and it's like emotional moments, like our first child, oh, my sweet little girl. And she's born, and she literally, she looks like she has a beard. And I was just like, oh, no. We brought a Sasquatch into the world. Nobody told me. No one told me that this is normal and that these hairs go away and all this stuff. So anyways, they don't, you know, I was like, man, I'm going to come up with a list and start a blog for all new parents. Like, don't be alarmed. This is what happens kind of thing. Um, what was really interesting about my little girl, though, when she was born, uh, she didn't open her eyes, I think, for like an entire day. Like, I, I didn't know what her eyes looked like. She had her eyes closed for, it felt like, I think it was a solid 24 hours. Um, but I could tell, even in her sort of newborn state, I could tell that when she would calm down and she was kind of in her little crib thing uh, at the hospital and I would gently speak to her, there was a sort of calm that would come over her. And when Jenny would speak to her, there was a sort of calm that would come over her. And it was pretty clear, pretty abundantly clear that though her eyes were not open, she was not yet seeing us, she could hear us. And then I thought about the reality that she, she, she was calm, I think in part, because these voices she was hearing, even though she had not yet opened her eyes, these voices she was hearing were familiar voices, right? Because what we know, because of modern medicine and science, is that uh, babies in the womb can hear the voice. They can hear the, and they familiarize over many months. They get familiar with the voice of their mother, their father, others sort of on the outside who are leaning in uncomfortably to a pregnant woman's belly and speaking. They, get, they can hear and recognize these sounds. It's really interesting that, uh, and this is not conjecture, um, Modern medicine science has shown us that hearing or listening for most people is one of the first um, human experiences that even in the womb, uh, babies before they are born, um, it's one of the first things that brings about awareness in their life, to hear. They can't make sense of the sound, but they know there's a sound. They can hear the voice. Several years ago, about 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, I um, late at night one night, I've told this story here before, late at night one night, I was praying uh, at the bedside of a dear friend of ours 
who was in her 20s and she had a very aggressive form of stomach cancer and she was literally in her final hours. And she was unconscious and she was laying there. The doctors had essentially said, this is it. These are your final moments. There's not anything we can do. It's just about you um, being with her. And so the husband called me and I went and we um, read the Psalms and we wept and we sang uh, songs to her. And I remember the doctor had told us um, there's a very good chance, though she will not be conscious, there's a very good chance she will in some way be able to hear you. So don't stop talking. Like keep speaking to her. Whether or not she's processing all the information in the way that she normally would have doesn't matter. She can hear your voice, and it's a way for you. This is a doctor, a secular doctor telling us it's a way for you to usher her into peace. Listening is, in many ways, the first and the last thing we do. In hospitals all around the world right now, in different wings of the same hospital, there are newborns that are entering a world that is frightening and new but totally familiar because they are hearing voices that they have heard for many months. And in those same hospitals, there are other wings of that hospital where there are men and women who are breathing their final breaths. And as they do, even if they are not conscious, they are hearing familiar voices ushering them into peace. But in between the beginning and ending of human life, life gets really loud. We start to lose our ability to listen. We hear a ton of noise, but we lose our ability to really listen. And because our world is so noisy, we have been, you and I, we have been conditioned to believe that the most important thing in life is not actually to hear and to listen. We've been conditioned to believe that the most important thing in our life is to be heard. And so you and I, most of us in this room, except for these next 30, 35 minutes when we like quietly are listening or whatever, Right? We enter the world, enter the noisy, chaotic, cacophonous fray, and we are like, because we're bombarded by noise, we feel this innate pressure to speak in a way where we can be heard. In a loud world, we come to believe that we now have to be loud. But in our world, there is so much talking, but so little listening. And again, like Ruth said, last week we started this new series where for the next month, you and I are exploring the possibility of living life with God at all times, everywhere. Not just at church for 75 minutes on a Sunday or the two hours you spend with your life group or the 10 minutes that you spend reading the Bible every week or the 30 seconds you pray before a meal, but literally everywhere at all times. Is it possible to live life with God all the time? To live with a deep abiding awareness of his closeness and his presence, his withness with you? Is it possible? That's the question we're asking. And if it is possible, how? And today I want to explore the idea of a listening life, that one of the most important things you and I can do to experience God at all times is to stop talking and to begin listening. Let me read uh, 
this story for you. It's an Old Testament story. It's an ancient story. It took place thousands of years ago, like 3,000 years ago. It's a beautiful story. It's the story of a young boy named Samuel. And I don't have time to get into all of his backstory. So let me just jump in. 1 Samuel chapter 3. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. Eli was a priest at the time. And in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. Keep that in mind. We'll come back to it. There were not many visions. And one night, Eli, the priest, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out. We'll come back to that line as well. And Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. There's a lot happening here. We don't have time to get into all of it. Let me just give you a little bit of the backstory. Again, this story takes place like over 3,000 years ago. But some of you who know the Old Testament story, this story takes place several generations after God has led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, the Moses story, the Exodus story, and has led them to the promised land, this beautiful place that God had promised to give his people. Now, this story about Samuel takes place a few generations after the people had entered the promised land. And here's what's happening in the story. After the people had, had received the gift of the promised land that God had given them, freed them from slavery, God only had one request. He basically said, just as I have been faithful to you as my people, I want you to be faithful to me. But over the course of several generations, God's people had done what God's people continue to do today. They had failed. They had failed to be faithful to God. So when Samuel's story takes place, this is a time in which moral chaos abounds. People are doing whatever it is they want to do. There's a lack of godly leaders and just the people of God are totally fractured and they're not living in faithfulness to God. This is a time of utter moral chaos. And first Samuel begins here with the story of this young boy, he will eventually, Samuel, will eventually become a transitional leader for the Israelites. Some of you know the biblical story. There was a time before the kings of Israel when God himself was king of his people. They just interacted directly with him. Uh, some of you know the Exodus story. He leads the people in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Some of you know this story, right? God is directly leading his people, but eventually because of their failure and their rebellion, God will install kings, earthly kings, who will also inevitably fail. But when Samuel's story takes place, it's the period bef between those two eras. Before Israel had kings, after they had failed to hold up their end of the bargain in this loving relationship to God. But the story we're reading today is the story of Samuel's childhood. It's before he is this great leader in the land. He's just a young boy, and he's actually, uh, he's serving in the temple, the religious center of God's people. This man, Eli, this older man, Eli, is the priest uh, essentially the mediator between God and his people. And he's not a very good priest, but this young boy Samuel is one of Eli's servants. 
And the story tells us that Samuel is sleeping in the temple. He's not even sleeping like in his room. He's sleeping in the temple near what is called the ark. Long story short, the ark was like a literal physical structure that was the centerpiece of their religious life. They believed that it represented God's very presence. It's the holiest sort of most set apart item in all of Judaism. And Samuel is sleeping in the temple next to the ark, which represents the, the presence of God. And in that moment, this happens. Let's read it again. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not very many visions. Remember, this is a time of moral chaos, and God's voice has become rare. This should sound familiar to us. We live in a time of absolute utter chaos and God's voice seems rare. How many of us, those of us who are followers of Jesus, and I know not everyone in the room is, if you're not, we are thrilled you're here. Hopefully this is um, helpful to you in some way. More than anything, it's just a peeling back of the curtain. This is what Christians believe. This is what we fix our lives on. But I think all of us, Christian or not, we can relate. We live in a time of absolute, utter, noisy, loud, cacophonous chaos. And it is hard to hear the voice of the divine. Whether you're Christian or not, there's probably, because you're here, there's a decent chance that you are open to the possibility that there is some divine creator of all things. And if it is possible, my guess is that you would like to hear from him. That would be very nice. But it's hard to hear from him. The world is so noisy. It's like God's voice is rare. God's silence amid the chaos. This is a familiar idea for most of us. Let me just say a couple of things. First, the perceived absence of God's voice, and that's a key word, the perceived absence, not the actual absence, but the perceived absence of God's voice can lead us down one of two key paths. It can lead us down the path of cynicism, which essentially tells us God doesn't speak anymore. Like, that's cynicism, right? You know, you know why God seems silent? Because he is silent, because God doesn't really have anything to say anymore. Either he doesn't care enough to say anything, or he's far off and distant in the cosmic ether somewhere. He's not really nearby. He doesn't really care about what's happening here on the ground with us little humans. Whatever it is, we can go down the path of cynicism, or the perceived silence can lead us down a better path, the path of desire. Not God doesn't speak anymore, but God, I want to hear you. Like I can't hear you, but I want to hear you. These are the choices before us. Where does the path to desire begin? When the first Samuel story tells us that the voice of God was rare, that English word rare in the Hebrew, the original language of the text, it's a word that is better translated precious or highly valued. Um, when we think rare, we just think like, you know, rare as in, I don't know, there just isn't much of it, you know? And it doesn't really speak to intrinsic value. Things that we really love can be rare, but things that we don't really care much about can also be rare. It's just kind of a word we use that's a very big blanket sort of umbrella word. The original word in the Hebrew here is not that sort of word. It's very specific. It's a word used often to describe really, really precious minerals and jewels. 
The word infers a desire for the thing that is difficult to have. Rare means that it is precious and highly valuable. In other words, what the text tells us that in those days, the word of the Lord was really precious. It was really valued because it seemed to come so few and far between. The word infers a longing and a desire for more. And if we want to live the listening life, if we want to live a with God life, aware of his presence at all times, this is one of the starting points. If we want to hear the voice of God, we must first learn to value the voice of God. If we want to hear the voice of God, we have to learn to value the voice of God. Let's just unpack that longing to hear the voice of God for a second. Five minutes ago in this teaching, I said, we live in a chaotic world and most of us really want to hear God, but it's hard to hear him. I saw a bunch of heads in this room nodding. Now, if we rewind to that question and I were to rephrase the question, simply put, how many of us really, really value God's voice? There might be a different internal response. We're really honest with ourselves, like the question, do you really cherish God's voice? Do you see his voice, his words, whatever he has to say, whatever he has to say, do you see it as as of utmost value? Is there an openness in you that whether he says something that affirms your desires and longings, or grates against your desires and longings, that you value his voice? Or are there other voices we value more? The voice of friends or family, the voice of a supervisor at work, culture, media, your own inner voice, built on your own preferences and longings and conveniences and comforts. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says this, how sweet are your words to my taste, which is a very weird phrase. Talk about it in a moment. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. How sweet are your words to my taste? It's, it's a weird translation. That word taste, is a, it's a Hebrew word that literally means the roof of your mouth or your palate. In essence, what the psalmist is telling us is that the psalmist has acclimated and acquainted his palate to the voice of God. I've told this story here before, or a version of this story before, and if you've been around our church for a while, you know how I feel about cilantro. I will put cilantro on anything. You can give me an ice cream cone right now, and I will sprinkle cilantro on that bad boy and just love it. But I've told you this before, this was not always the case. First time I ever had cilantro was in high school. I went to a Vietnamese restaurant. I'd never had Vietnamese food before. And my friend and I ordered a bowl of pho. He was like, 
an expert Vietnamese guy, right? I had never had it before. You know, there's cilantro in, if you don't know what that is, like a Vietnamese noodle soup, there's cilantro in there. I've told you this story before. I take this big giant honking bite because it looks so good and I was hungry and the first things out of my mouth, I said to my friend, dude, I think there's dish soap in my <laughs> soup. Because if you're not acclimated to the taste, it, that is kind of what it tastes like. Like, I, th I don't think they cleaned my bowl. And I was going to say something to the, to the wait staff. I was like, dude, I, there's, there's soap in my soup. And my buddy's trying to now, he's like, what are you talking about? It tastes fine. And then he realized, oh, no, that's not, that's not dish soap. That's cilantro. And so I taste just the cilantro, and I realized that's it. This is the herb they use to make dish soap. That's what I, that's what I thought, you know? And... Uh, it was so weird. I was like, oh my gosh, how does anybody eat this? But here we are now, you know, like 18 years later or what, whatever, however long, 20 years later, and I, I will put cilantro on anything because it's an acquired taste. It wasn't comfortable. It wasn't delicious. It wasn't sweet to me from day one. To hear God, we have to acquire and develop a genuine longing for the voice of God. And to develop this sort of desire, we have to commit to consistent, disciplined practice. If you were here last week, um, I'll show you this next image. We, we uh, launched something last week, an invitation to our entire church to practice what is called the daily examine every single day this year. Now, um, our design team created a bunch of phone backgrounds. So you can, if you want to, if you didn't get one, actually, I, I would love to see. How many of you guys have actually made the daily exam and prompts your phone backgrounds? Don't raise your hand, show me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I believe you, I believe you. <laughs> no, it's awesome, that's a lot of hands. If you haven't gotten it yet, go ahead and scan that QR code. You can make it your phone background. The reason we design phone backgrounds is because we are trying to subvert what is the most destructive, attention-stealing device in human history, your phone. And to remind you, every time you pop it open to whatever, scroll whatever, to remind you, hey, at some point today, outside of the four hours today you will spend on your smartphone, that is the national average for US adults, out of that four hours you will spend on your smartphone, can you set aside five minutes to talk to God about these things? So if you want more info about that, go to our website. It'll give you prompts on how to navigate it. My wife and I have been practicing the daily examine with our kids every evening. And let me tell you, with an eight-year-old and a five-year-old, it is an acquired taste, <laughs> right? My son, especially my son, he is not like, oh, God, I'm Dad, I'm so glad we're doing this. It's been a rough day. So I've been running around, like, playing with my friends. Lots of sandbox action today. So I think I need a deep breath. Thank you, Dad, for leading our family through the daily exam. And guys, let's just breathe deeply and invite the Lord. My son's not doing that. He's like, he's like laying on his bed and he rushes. Like, like I try to start and remember the first movement is invite God to, to increase your awareness of God's presence. He, there's no inviting for him. He lays on his bed. We're like, okay, you guys, we're going to pray. And right away, he's like, thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for everything. I like, he starts that way every day. And for the last week, we've had to coach him like, okay, no, 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 let's not start that way. Let's just take some deep breaths. And he's like, he doesn't know what that means, you know? 
But I can, I've seen him in the last few days. He's getting a little bit more acclimated. Like he's slow, I mean, he's still wild, but he's still, like he's slowly beginning to understand, hey, we start slow here, you know? So it'll take some time. But practice, disciplined practice, is the way in which we acclimate our palate to the voice of God, where the voice that seems so unfamiliar eventually becomes sweet to us. Dallas Willard put it this way, that our failure to hear his voice when we want to is due to the fact that we do not, in general, want to hear it, that we want it only when we think we need it. Again, when I ask the question, in the noise of our world, do you want to hear God? For most of us, this is what we mean. Yes, I want to hear God in the moments when I need it. But the question really is, no. Do you want to hear God always, at all times, no matter what you're going through? Now, again, some of us are dealing with cynicism, right? We're struggling with cynicism. Does God still speak? Verses two and three of the story. It says, one night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. And then look at this phrase. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Now, this is a literal lamp in the temple. And traditionally, this lamp was lit. It was kept lit from evening until morning. Now, in some ways, this part of the story is literal. What the writer is telling us is that Samuel is lying in the temple and the physical, literal lamp is lit. It's still lit. So he's giving us basically a point of reference. This is still in the middle of the night. But most scholars agree that this is actually a brilliant line intended to give us more than just the physical time of day in which this story takes place. Here's what I mean. In the story of King David that many of you know, Right, you guys know King David, he wrote a bunch of the Psalms, he slayed the giant Goliath, all, that guy who will become the greatest king in Israel's history. Some of you, many of you know this already, some of you may not. This young boy, Samuel, he, when he gets older, he becomes the great prophet of Israel and Samuel is the one that God instructs to go and anoint a young boy named David to be the king of his people. So Samuel is directly connected to King David. And if you read the story of King David, what you will discover is that the imagery of a lamp still burning is used multiple times, four or five times in fact, to describe a metaphor. It's used as a metaphor to describe the fact that God has not left his people. Let me give you one example. 2 Kings chapter eight, this is when David is king. For the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He had promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. So most scholars agree that in the first Samuel chapter three story, when this little line shows up, that Samuel is lying down in the temple near the ark and the lamp of the Lord had not yet gone out. Yes, it is literal. There was an actual lamp that was burning in the middle of the night, but this is a wink and a nod to hope. That even though God's voice was rare, even though it seemed like God was silent, the lamp was still burning. 
God is still speaking. He is still with his people. During a time when God seemed silent, hope continued to burn bright. God was still speaking and God would continue speaking through David and through David's line. Because generations later, who, what child would be born from David's lineage that would bring light into the world? Who? Jesus, yes, you could have guessed the answer, just like the answer, if you don't know, is always Jesus. You could have done that here today and you would have gotten 100%. Jesus, what do we read in Hebrews chapter one? In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by who? His son. So thousands of years ago, a little boy lays in the temple. And this is during a time of utter chaos when God seemed like he wasn't saying anything, which is basically the world you and I live in today. And this little boy hears a voice. And the story tells us that the lamp was still burning bright, that in the midst of silence, the light was still flickering. And so it is today. The story tells us this. This is a longer section of the story. The Lord called Samuel and Samuel answered, here I am. And he ran to Eli and he said, here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call you, go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again, the Lord called Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call, go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. He was still tasting like soap in the cilantro, right? <laughs> a third time, the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there calling as at the other times. Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. There's several things here that I think are so helpful in terms of our desire to live a listening life with God. First, Samuel is persistent and he is consistent in listening and responding. Do you notice that? Here I am, here I am, here I am. He gets up and he goes, he gets up and he goes and he gets up and he goes again. And at the same time, Samuel needs time and he needs help to recognize God's voice. This is one of the reasons why we ask so many of you, all of you, if you're part of our church family, at some point to take a next step into the life of our community. Often God speaks through scripture and through our own personal prayer lives, but that voice is clarified so often in loving Christian community. This has happened in my life countless times where I am uncertain if the voice I am hearing is truly God. And I look at the scriptures, does the voice, what the voice is saying, does it contradict in any way God's given word through scripture? No, okay, well, I need more clarity. And then it's often the community of God's people through their love and generosity and prayer that brings me that clarity. When God says to Samuel in the subsequent verses, if you continue reading the story, here's the thing. This is like a really beautiful story, but if you keep reading the story, what God says to Samuel after Samuel says, speak, Lord, your servant is listening, it is not awesome. 
Like you would think a beautiful story like this, God, God's like, oh, you're listening. Let me just tell you some things. And it's like poetic and beautiful and inspiring and hopeful. That is not what happens. What God says to Samuel is just like an, it's a total bummer. He basically is like, yeah, things are like not good, dude. And Eli, the priest you're working for, not great, man. And here's the thing. I know you're a little boy and you don't really know what, what you're doing, but here's the thing, dude. Like, I need you to go tell Eli that basically him and a bunch of people he loves, they're probably gonna die. And it's like not a good time. That's what God says. It's not great. It's not great. And yet God continues speaking through Samuel for decades to come. Why? Because in this moment, God, Samuel is open to hearing the voice of God. And what he hears from the voice of God is not great, but he obeys. He does what God asks him to do. Samuel listens and obeys. Remember, this is a time in Israel's history when there was utter disarray, people are, are in moral chaos, there's idolatry and disobedience like all over the place. And this is one of the key reasons why God's voice was so rare in those days. Because God, and do not forget this, God refuses to speak in vain. He's God. He doesn't need to repeat himself to us. There's this really hard verse in another prophetic book called Amos chapter eight. God says this, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Is it possible that one of the reasons why culturally speaking, maybe not you individually, but is it possible that one of the reasons why in the modern Western Christian church, one of the reasons why we struggle so much to hear the voice of God is because God is saying famine in the land. Over and over again, there is disobedience. So why would I continue speaking? Let me show you this next image. Here's what I mean. This is how it works, biblically and experientially in my own life. This is how it has always worked. There are two paths. One, God speaks, we hear and do nothing, and then we begin to hear nothing. I've experienced this countless times in my life. God speaks, I hear him, but it's too hard, it's too challenging, it's too painful, it's too awkward, I do nothing, and then I begin to hear nothing. But sometimes God speaks, we listen and obey, no matter how challenging it is, whatever it is he has said, and God's voice becomes clearer. And Jesus himself says, my sheep listen to my voice, I know them and they follow me. James 1, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. The writer Adam McHugh says, our desire to listen is shaped by the trust we have for the voice we hear. Do you trust God? If you do, then you must be willing to obey when he says things that don't make sense to you. Finally, just for a moment, let's consider how Jesus listened for his father's voice. Luke chapter five, the news about him, about Jesus, spread all the more. So basically, Jesus is becoming really famous. So that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness, but 
Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Listen, if news began spreading about us and crowds began gathering to see us, and I know that's true for some of you in this room, you've actually achieved um, a level of notoriety and acclaim in culture today, and that's a beautiful gift in your life. Um, But here's the thing. If news began spreading about us, crowds began gathering to see us, withdrawing to pray would probably be the last thing on our minds. The first thing on our minds would be like, how do I keep the momentum going? How do I leverage social media to just like take this to the next level, right? How do I, again, be heard rather than listen? This is exactly what Jesus does. He starts getting real famous and he continues, and maybe even more so, withdrawing to lonely places because God's voice is clearest in quiet places. Peter Gregg, founder of uh, 24-7 Prayer, he says this, that just as a lake that is still can reflect the light and as a room that is silent can amplify a whisper, so a soul that is quiet can hear the voice of God. In a world as noisy as ours, with as many competing voices as we face, quiet will never just happen. So we have to calendar quiet. So one of the reasons why the daily examine, my hope is that it will be helpful and formative for us as a church. My ask of you is that you calendar the daily examine. Put it, literally put it on your calendar. Figure out a day and a location where you will every day quiet the noise and talk with and listen to God because he's still speaking today. I'm gonna invite Les and the team to come back up. We're gonna sing and respond here together. Before we do, um, I'm gonna tell you a quick story and then I'm gonna give us a moment to listen. I'll show you an image here. This is a woman named Margaret McCollum. Miss um, McCollum is a doctor she, right now, today. She's a doctor in London and uh, well-renowned and highly respected. You know, She's achieved a lot in her life and she's very busy. She's a doctor. Um, in 2007, her husband, Oswald, passed away. Now, um, how many of you guys have been to London, spent time in London or in the UK? Yeah, a bunch of you guys. Um, you know, there's a whole, they don't call it the subway, they call it something else, but there's a whole subway system. The tube, sorry. Was that you, Calvin? So, oh, yes. The Finters, who are actually Brits. <laughs> sorry, I offended them. <laughs> Peter, my apologies for calling it the subway. How dare I? It's the tube. <laughs> the tube. Okay. Peter, have you ever been to the embankment tube? The embankment station? Okay. At the tube in London. <laughs> There is a, at, at all of them, um, there's a safety PSA, public service announcement, right? Because there needs to be a gap between the oncoming train and, and potential passengers. I mean, you, you know, death, right? If you fall on the tracks. So as trains are oncoming, there's a PSA at, at all of the tubes in London and throughout the UK. And it will say the words, mind the gap, mind the gap. It's basically like stand back right, in English, in New York City, the subway, we call it the subway here, Venters, apologies, right, uh, right, it's like, stand back, stand back, that whole thing, right, and, and the words in, um, in London are mind the gap, 
Margaret McCollum's husband, Oswald, before he passed away in 2007, he had actually spent many years as an actor and as a voice actor. And somehow, some way, early on, many, many decades ago, um, in the 50s, actually, he had been hired by um, the city to record the audio for uh, the PSA particularly for the embankment station PSA. So Peter, I don't know if you've ever heard it, but um, a while ago, there was like, it was Oswald's voice, mind the gap, mind the gap. And after Oswald passed away, Margaret so longed to hear his voice that she would visit, she's a doctor. She's got a lot going on. She would visit the embankment station every day and sit quietly in the midst of the the madness and chaos of passengers coming to and fro, she would sit and fix her ears beyond the noise to hear the voice of her husband. Mind the gap, mind the gap. Several years ago, in 2012, the London subway tube service (laughs) replaced these old PSAs from the 50s with digital versions. These sort of robotic, almost like Siri, like mind the gap, you know, that kind of thing. Margaret found out about this because one day she went to the embankment station as she did every day and she realized that the voice was not the voice of her husband. She spent months talking to the officials and begging them at least at the embankment station to return her husband's voice and it was eventually restored. And to this day, Margaret still visits the embankment station every day in the midst of her busy life to hear the voice of her husband. You want to see a video of it? Let's roll this video. generous, very romantic, lovely, lovely person, and we adored each other. Of course, I still miss him. Yes. Yes. Adam McHugh says in his book, The Listening Life, he says, a loud, overcrowded, hyperactive life is the antithesis of the listening life. The hyperactive life is so often trying to prove its worth, make its mark, and justify its existence. The listening life waits quietly and humbly for God to make his mark on us. What's so fascinating to me about that video is that Margaret McCollum is not sitting in a peaceful, serene park. Her circumstances, her surrounding situation is not ideal for hearing a voice, is it? And what's so fascinating to me is that at the embankment station, Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people every day go to and fro without giving second thought to the voice. Mind the gap. But she does. No matter how noisy your life is, no matter how many competing voices there may be, God is speaking. All you've got to do is sit quietly and listen. So let's do that right now. Before the band leads us in the next couple of songs, it's gonna ask you to close your eyes. Take a few deep breaths.
and listen for the voice 